Hey everybody, welcome back to Now Let's Be Honest. I'm your host, David Tate, and this is another episode in our ongoing series, Walking Through the Gospel of Matthew. I won't waste your time with any extended intro shenanigans, so let's get to our main discussion. Last week, we covered the entirety of Matthew chapter 4, discussing the temptation narrative of Jesus in the wilderness, and also his early ministry through calling his disciples, and also just ministering around the region of Galilee. And what I want to do this week is I want to actually hit a pause button in our progression through the narrative, and I want to go back to that temptation narrative that we covered last week, and I want to specifically focus in on Jesus' use of the Old Testament in his responses to the devil. This is something that we've kind of been doing as we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew so far, where we're covering the narrative, but I'm also wanting to specifically look at just Matthew's use of the Old Testament throughout this whole book. So we've been taking pause buttons every now, we've been hitting pause buttons every now and then, and we've been looking at how Matthew uses prophecy uh, throughout his book. And then since this, really this narrative about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness is the first time we've really gotten to see Jesus in action doing what he does, I think it's really important for us to just kind of hit the pause button again and look at how Jesus views the Old Testament scriptures and how he views his own ministry and how he uses the Old Testament scriptures and applies them into his own life. Because I think that will give us insight into how we can also use the Old Testament scriptures and apply them into our own lives. And so I think this will be a really beneficial and hopefully very practical study for us. And uh, I'm just really excited for it. But in order to do that, maybe we should recap the story as it is. And I've got it all here on this table that I've created that kind of breaks it down. Uh, Throughout Matthew chapters 4 verses 1 through 11, we actually have four different quotations from the Old Testament. Three of them come from the mouth of Jesus, and one of them comes from the mouth of the devil. And what I want to do over the course of this video is basically just to give you my outline of this video. Uh, I want to break down Uh, each of these passages in their original context, right? We already kind of talked about their function in the narrative itself last week, but today I want to go back and I want to examine each of these four passages in their original context and see how Jesus uses them correctly and how the devil misuses them. And then I want to draw key principles out of that to just see how maybe these passages are functioning in an even more beautiful and impressive way than we might immediately understand just reading the single verses in isolation in the original text. And then I also also want to just end this video by giving us practical insights and implications and application points and principles that we can take out of this to apply it in our own lives. Uh, and that's just something that I kind of just felt like I really wanted to do because throughout this whole series, my main goal is just to help communicate Matthew's overall purpose through his book and through his gospel. But I don't want to just neglect the application of the scriptures because that's super duper important. And so hopefully this video will have a lot of really key applications for us, especially once we get to the end. Uh, but here's the story itself. Uh, and I'm just going to read through this from the beginning to end. I don't have the entire narrative here. I only have the sections that ultimately quote scripture. But this is verses 2 through 10 of Matthew chapter 4. And after Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. All right, so right off the bat, uh, I'm going to highlight something that almost every single person will highlight whenever they cover this text. And it's the fact that the way that Jesus counters temptation is through citing scripture. And I think that that is just a key thing for us to understand right off the bat. The way that we should counter temptation is also through citing scripture. Uh, and that explains why we need to know the scripture so well, right? Like if we don't know God's word, how are we going to retaliate and how are we going to respond whenever the devil comes in and tempts us? But there's another thing that I really want to highlight here because it's not simply enough to know God's word. We also have to know the context in which God's word is found, which is a really big thing on this channel. If you haven't noticed, I'm a huge context guy. But the reason I emphasize the context is because Jesus isn't the only person who cites scripture in this passage. The devil himself cites scripture. And if you think citing scripture is all you need to do, well, then you're going to end up throwing yourself off of a temple in order to demonstrate that you're the son of God, right? Because... He quotes a scripture to defend that Jesus should do this. But what I want to do is I want to go look at that passage as we go through this video. And I want us to see how the devil is misusing that scripture, right? So it's not enough to simply know scripture. We need to know the context of scripture and we need to know the proper application of it. And we're going to see that Jesus knows the context and it's the context itself which makes what he's quoting all the more rich. Because whenever the devil is tempting Jesus to turn a stone into bread and Jesus cites a verse about man not living on bread alone, he isn't simply just searching his mind and saying, hmm, I wonder if there's a passage in the Bible about bread. Ooh, let me quote that. That's not what he's doing. If you look at the broader context, you'll see that the message that Moses was communicating when he gave that verse is the same exact message that Jesus is communicating to the devil whenever he delivered it, right? And so the context itself is crucial in understanding this entire narrative. And so let's go explore that. We're just going to walk through this one at a time. So the very first thing is the devil shows up to him and he says, hey, turn the stone into bread. And Jesus responds and he says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. This is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter eight. All the quotes that Jesus gives here are from Deuteronomy. Uh, and this is the broader context of that passage. Deuteronomy chapter eight, beginning in verse one. The entire commandment that I am commanding to you today, this is Moses speaking to the people of Israel, the entire commandment that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which Yahweh swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember all the way which Yahweh your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So right off the bat, right there, just in those first two verses, Moses is communicating to the people of Israel why God led them into the wilderness. He led them into the wilderness to humble them, to test them, and to see what is in their heart. And so every way that they respond when they're in the wilderness is, re is revealing something about them. It is revealing what's in their heart. It is revealing whether or not they're passing the test. And it is revealing whether or not they're humble. And in all of those ways, the people of Israel failed. And that's exactly what, math, uh, what Moses is going to go on to communicate. And he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, 
but by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahweh. So Moses communicates that God actually allowed them to starve and be hungry in the wilderness because he wanted them to turn to him and turn to his provision and rely on him. But really, the people just grumbled. And maybe it's actually worth going and reading that passage in and of itself, what Moses is referring to. Because the book of Deuteronomy is Moses near the end of his life, basically giving the people of Israel final instruction shortly before his death. But what he's alluding to right here actually goes back to Exodus chapter 16. Uh, the people of Israel are, have just been freed from Egypt. And in chapters in chapter 14, they flee through the Red Sea, right? The Red Sea parts and they go through. And then in chapter 15, they sing a song of praise to God. And you would think that everything's going to go super well afterwards. But when you flip to just the end of chapter 15, the people start grumbling. And when you get to chapter 16, which is just a few days after all these amazing things have happened, this is what we read. And the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt, when we sat by pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to put this whole assembly to death with hunger. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my law. So God explains in this passage that he is giving them bread to see whether or not they will listen to his word or whether or not they are super focused on just feeding themselves, right? That's the main thing God's trying to figure out. Are they simply just craving bread or are they learning to crave God and his word? Now it will be on the sixth day, they shall prepare what they bring in, and it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, At evening you will know that Yahweh has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of Yahweh, for he hears your grumblings against Yahweh. And what are we that you grumble against us? And so God providentially and miraculously gives them bread from heaven to feed them. And he says he gives them this to see whether or not they will obey him. And if you keep reading through the text, you'll see that they don't obey him. On certain days, they gather more than they're supposed to. And on the Sabbath day, they go out there and still try to gather when they're supposed to rest. And so we see that the people's hunger for food was greater than their hunger for the word of God. And so that's what Moses is rebuking them for in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He says, man does not live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahweh. That was what God was trying to teach you in the wilderness. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these forty years. Thus you shall know in your heart that Yahweh your God was disciplining you, just as a man disciplines his son. So you shall keep the commandments of Yahweh your God, to walk in his ways and to fear him. For Yahweh your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and figs trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food without scarcity, in which you will lack any will not lack anything. A land whose stones are iron, and of whose hills you can dig copper, and so you will eat and be satisfied, and you shall bless Yahweh your God for the good land which he has given you. So, so just to summarize all of that, Moses is basically telling the people, God allowed you to endure scarcity and hardship in the wilderness so that you could learn to rely on him when you had nothing, so that you could actually handle the prosperity when you got into the land. Because if you can't learn on if you can't learn to rely on God whenever you have nothing, 
how are you possibly going to handle prosperity? Because even whenever you had nothing and the only person you could have relied on was God, you still didn't rely on him. So whenever you actually have things that could sustain you and could distract you from him, you're definitely not going to focus on him. And so Moses' whole point is that this wilderness time period was a time period to refine the people of Israel and teach them to rely on God's word and to trust on him for provision rather than seeking to provide for themselves and relying on their own capabilities. And so that's the context of that. And we're going to recap this in a little bit, and we're going to see how this fits into the narrative of Jesus. Uh, but let's just move on because Jesus passed the test, right? He passed the test and he quotes this verse. And so the devil moves on, but the devil picks up on the fact that Jesus likes quoting scripture. And so the devil says, hmm, I can play that game. And so he decides to quote scripture too. And so the next place he takes Jesus is to the pinnacle of the temple. This is on the southern region of the temple in Jerusalem. And he quotes to Jesus that he should throw himself down to demonstrate he's the son of God. And he quotes Psalm 91 saying, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And this is the broader context of Psalm 91. It says this, he who abides in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to Yahweh, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the destructive pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will take refuge. His truth is a large shield and bulwark. The imagery is that God can provide and take care of those who trust in him, right? And specifically speaking, since we're in the Psalms here, the person that it chiefly has in mind is the anointed one of God, the royal king who sits on the throne, ultimately to be embodied in the Messiah. So whatever is true of God's people is ultimately and even more greatly true in God's anointed one. And whatever is true in God's anointed king is definitely true in his ultimate anointed king, the Messiah that is to come. And the devil perceives this, and so he's going to take this and he's going to try to use this to guide Jesus into sin. And so you need to be very careful with how he uses this because I think this is where we might fall into very tricky categories sometimes. You will not be afraid of terror by night or arrow that flies by day, of pestilence that moves in darkness or of destruction that devastates at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. So the promises and the principles that we see in Psalm 91 so far is that if you trust in God and if you are favored by God, God will provide for you whenever life is getting really, really tough. And obviously this isn't to say, this isn't like prosperity preaching, right? It's not saying that life is always going to be great all the time. It's just saying that God will take care of those who trust in him. And you might not always see that provision, but ultimately he will do that. And for the anointed one, especially under the Mosaic covenant, if God's people are trusting in him, life is going to go good. And if God's king is trusting in him, his kingdom will be firm and established. And so you have to read this specifically in the context of the Mosaic covenant, right? God has made a promise to these people that he will do these things. And so you just have to remember that. For you have made Yahweh my refuge, the most high, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you and no plague will come near your tent. So because you trust in God, you will be free of all the pain and hardships belonging to most other people. That is what is being promised to God's anointed one. And this is the passage that the devil quotes. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the fierce lion and cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. Because he has loved me, therefore I will protect him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in his distress. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life I will satisfy him and I will show him my 
salvation. All right. So when you read through that, you might be saying, well, it seems like the devil's interpreting this correctly. This poem and this psalm seems to be primarily about God's protection and his care for and his great esteem for his holy and beloved king, right? His anointed one. This is all of his promises for how we will, he will protect the king who is faithful to him. And I would say that is 100% what it's about. But it's how he applies it that is wrong. And one thing that I'll notice, I just want to point out to you here, is notice that the devil actually skips one portion of this, right? He is trying to get Jesus to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple. And he says, well, he'll command his angels concerning you so that they won't let, they'll bear you up so that you won't strike your foot against a stone. So the imagery is that God will send his angels to come in there, sweep him up and miraculously just fly him back up to the top of the pinnacle so that he doesn't even bruise himself at the bottom of the, at the bottom of the ground. But is that the imagery that we see in verses 11 and 12? It says, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. That's the part that the devil leaves out. So whenever you look at this, the imagery isn't of the angels swooping in and helping this anointed one of God avoid falling to his death. The imagery is that the angels are going to come and help him follow the paths of God. So he's commanding his angels to help keep him on the path of righteousness, not to keep him from falling to certain death. On their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone, right? So the imagery is not of literally falling and striking your foot against a stone. The imagery is of following the path of God and not tripping and stumbling off the path, right? So yes, it is about the angels coming and protecting the servant and son of God. But ultimately, it's not talking about literally falling to a physical death. It is talking about keeping them on the path of righteousness, and even beyond that, what the devil's trying to do is he is taking this and he is being like one of those skeptical atheists you typically see online who says, well, if God is who he really claims to be, he needs to prove it to me. That's what the devil's doing with this. He is taking a principle and a beautiful promise that we have in scripture, and he's trying to get Jesus to test God and make him prove it. He's saying, well, yeah, God might say this about you, but how do you know it's true? What you should really do is you should jump off this pinnacle of the temple and see if God sends his angels to catch you. Whereas technically, if you just read this passage in context, there's no place where God promises that the angels will do that. In the context, the angels are simply helping them stay on the path of righteousness. And ironically, to stay on the path of righteousness is to not test God. And so if you're actually applying this passage, you don't jump off the temple. Right? So you can see how the devil, he quotes scripture, but he intentionally omits things and he intentionally changes the context to actually try to get Jesus to step into sin. And that's what the devil's been doing since the very beginning. You go back to Genesis chapter three. What does the serpent say? Did God really say this? The devil doesn't just show up and just give evil thoughts into your mind usually. What he'll do is he will misquote scripture and he'll misrepresent God's commands so that you can start justifying your sin. And that's exactly what the devil does right here. But let's move on and let's see how Jesus responds. Jesus responds to him and he understands exactly what the devil's doing. And he says, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is a quote from actually a few chapters earlier in Deuteronomy. We were in Deuteronomy chapter eight earlier, but this is from Deuteronomy chapter six. And what's really cool is that both of Jesus' quotations for this temptation and the next temptation come from this one particular passage. So I'm going to start at the beginning of chapter six, and I'm just going to read through it because uh, there's some really significant verses in here that you'll probably recognize. 
Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments, which Yahweh your God has commanded me, Moses, to teach you, Israelites, that you might do it in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your sons and your grandson might fear Yahweh your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I am commanding you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you shall listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. So Moses is basically telling the people, hey, here are the commandments that God told me to give you so that you don't make the same mistakes that you made in the wilderness whenever you get into the land. Because you got to remember, Moses is going to die before they get into the land. So he says, I'm not going to be here to hold your hand all the way. Right? I'm going to give you these commandments so that you can learn from your past mistakes and from your parents' past mistakes. And when you go into the promised land, you can live obediently. And this is how those commands start. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. This is what is known as the Shema. Shema Yisrael. Yahweh Elohenu, Yahweh Echad. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall speak them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as phylacteries between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Moses is saying these commandments need to be your blood right? These commandments need to be flowing through you. They need to be everything that you are, whether you're going in of your into your house, whether you're coming out of your house, whether you're getting dressed, whether you're waking up in the morning, whether you're going to bed at night. These commandments always need to be there. They need to be attached to you. They need to be the very thing that gives you life and breath every single day. And your question is, what are those commandments? This is what Moses is going to say. Then it will be when Yahweh your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you great and good cities which you did not build, and houses full of good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you will eat and be satisfied. Then beware lest you forget Yahweh who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Right? So once again, he's laying the context. When you get into the land, you need to remember these commandments and you need to keep them close to you so that you don't forget him and return back to the way you once were whenever you were a slave in Egypt. And your question at this point is probably, Moses, what are these commands that we're supposed to honor and revere so carefully? And he says this, Yahweh your God, you shall fear. In him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear. We're going to come back to that one in just a moment. But he continues onwards. You shall not walk after other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. For Yahweh your God in the midst of you is a jealous God, lest the anger of Yahweh your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from the face of the earth. So he says, serve God and serve him only. If you serve any other gods, God's going to turn against you, and he might even destroy you from the face of the earth. And he says this, you shall not put Yahweh your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You should diligently keep the commandments of Yahweh your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of Yahweh that it may be well with you and that you may go in and possess the good land which Yahweh swore to give to your fathers by driving out all your enemies from before you as Yahweh has spoken. So right there in verse 16, we have the second verse that Jesus quotes. And if you appreciate the context, you'll really appreciate what Jesus is communicating. So Moses says to them, when you get into this land, you better not dare put God to the test in the same way that you put him to the test at Massa. And your question is, 
Well, when did they put God to the test at Massa? What is this? Well, this is a reference back to Exodus. So let's go back to Exodus and let's look at that. The bread from heaven thing, the manna thing that I read earlier, that was Exodus chapter 16. If you flip over to Exodus chapter 17, this is what we read. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of Yahweh, and they camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you test Yahweh? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to put us and our children and our livestock to death with thirst? So Moses cried out to Yahweh, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he named the place Massa and Meribah because of the contending of the sons of Israel, and because they tested Yahweh, saying, Is Yahweh among us or not? So the specific way that the people tested God at Massa was that when they got there, they were asking, is God really with us or not? He says he's with us, but is he? Here we are. We don't have any water. We're thirsty. If God really is with us, he needs to do something miraculous to provide for us. And ultimately, God did provide for them, right? He has Moses strike the rock. Water comes out of the rock and the people drink freely. So they tested God and God passed the test. But right here in Deuteronomy, Moses says, don't you dare do that again right? Why would you test God? You're supposed to trust God. His word should be enough, right? If he says he's with you, you should trust that he's with you. You don't need to test that word. That's exactly what the devil is trying to get Jesus to do, right? The devil is saying, I know that in Psalm 91, God said he'd be with you. So why don't you throw yourself off the ledge and see if he truly is? But if you go look at what the Israelites did at Massa, Moses says, don't do that again, right? If God says he's with you, trust that he's with you. If God has given his word, that should be enough. You shouldn't need more proof than that because God has already given us enough proof to believe that his word is true. So Moses says, don't put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. And so at this point in the story, the devil begins to realize that yes, he might know the Bible, but Jesus seems to know the Bible better. And so he stops citing scripture, right? And so he takes Jesus to a mountaintop now, uh, and now he's overlooking all the kings of the earth. And he says, all right, how about this? Um, I'm not going to bother quoting scripture because you seem to know that very well, but look at all these kingdoms. If you want all these kingdoms, all you have to do is bow down before me and worship me right now. And this is how Jesus responds. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The cool thing here is that I don't actually need to even read the whole passage that this is quoting because I already read it earlier, right? This is the same passage that we literally just read in Deuteronomy chapter 6. A few verses before Moses says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, he just told them, 
Yahweh your God you shall fear, and him you shall serve. This is literally the first commandment that he pronounces to them after accentuating how important the commandments were. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You shall make sure that these commandments are so close to you that they are like lifeblood day in, day out, everywhere you go, everyone you see, everyone you talk to. These commandments need to be super important to you so that you can live well and prosper in the land. And then you ask yourself, what is that commandment? What is the most important commandment? And he says, Yahweh, your God, you shall fear and him you shall serve. And if you keep reading through it, he says, you shall not walk after other gods, any of the gods of the people who surround you for Yahweh, your God in the midst of you is a jealous God, lest the anger of Yahweh, your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from the face of the earth. Now you might ask yourself, why would Moses need to tell the people this? Well, that's because not long after they had been in the wilderness, this is exactly what they did. They turned and they worshiped another God. And sure enough, just like Moses warned them here, after they turned and worshiped another God, God wanted to destroy them. If you go to Exodus chapter 32, one of the most famous stories about the people of Israel in the wilderness, this is what we read. Then the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. So the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Arise, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took this from their hand and fashioned it with the graving tool and made it into a molten calf and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And Aaron looked and built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. So he had the audacity to call this false god Yahweh. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And then notice how God responds. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, Go, go down at once, for your people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, whom you, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And Yahweh said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, they are stiff-necked people. Now then let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may consume them and I will make you a great nation. So God sees what these people have done. He is jealous of what they've done and he decides he's going to destroy them. But Moses, being the good and gracious leader that he is, he intercedes on behalf of the people and he says, God, give them another chance. And God, being gracious and loving and forgiving, gives them another chance. And that entire narrative is one of my favorite narratives in the entire Bible, Exodus 32 to 34. It's fantastic. But the whole point here is that the people of Israel strayed from God and they were so much, they had so much desire for the kingdom that God had promised that they were willing to abandon God in order to receive that kingdom, right? They asked Aaron to make them gods who could lead them into the land. They were willing to abandon the one true God in order to receive the kingdom God had promised. If you think about the context that Jesus is in right now, by the end of the Gospel of Matthew, he's going to say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So Jesus is going to receive the kingdoms. But right here, the devil is trying to tempt him to receive the kingdom prematurely, just like the people of Israel were wanting to receive whenever they made the golden calf. They wanted a false god who could give them the kingdom. Ironically, that false god couldn't give them the full kingdom, right? It was just a statue. Satan couldn't give Jesus the authority that Jesus deserves. He was simply tempting Jesus to not be patient. 
And so Jesus responds by quoting this and says, Yahweh, your God, you shall fear and him alone shall you serve. And so there's the context of all that. Now let's just go back and let's recap the context in the original place and how Matthew uses it and see what insights we can get there. So first thing we see is that all of Jesus' quotations come from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and 8, where Moses instructs the people of Israel about lessons they should have learned in the wilderness. Where we're at in the Gospel of Matthew, as Jesus is literally living out the history of Israel, he is in that wilderness wandering time period where he just passed through waters, right, the Jordan River, and he's gone into the wilderness by the guidance of the Holy Spirit to be tested and tempted to see what lies in his heart. And where all the people of Israel failed, Jesus is succeeding. Firstly, the first temptation in the original passage, Deuteronomy chapter 8, we see that Yahweh allowed the people of Israel to hunger in the wilderness in order to see what was in their hearts. They were to learn to trust in his provision, knowing that they needed him more than they needed life itself. Ironically, though, they didn't do that, right? They hungered so much for bread that even whenever God miraculously provided bread for them, they disobeyed his commandments because they didn't hunger for the word of God. In Matthew, we see that unlike Israel, who arrived in the wilderness and immediately grumbled over bread and disobeyed God's commands once he gave them bread, Jesus chose to deny himself and trust God for his bread, though he had the power to quench his own hunger. The key principle behind all this, he hungered to satisfy God more than he hungered to satisfy his own flesh. This is how Jesus succeeded where Israel failed. Secondly, let's talk about how the devil misused scripture. In Psalm 91, we see that the psalm promises care and protection for the anointed of Yahweh. When he faces hardship, Yahweh will tend to his needs and keep him safe, but that's also specifically in the context of keeping him on the correct path of following God, right? That's the primary context, though there definitely is promises for physical provision as well. But in Matthew chapter 4, Satan instigated Jesus to test the truth of God's word, encouraging him to put his life at stake so God could prove himself true, aka, if God really loves you so much, let him prove it. This is a misuse and abuse of scripture, and that's why Satan did this really poorly, and he did it very wrong. And this is not how we should apply scripture, but I think a lot of times this is exactly what we do. A lot of the times we will just take verses, rip them out of their context, and hold God to those things, whereas sometimes we are asking God to fulfill a promise that he never actually made, right? God never said that if one of his kings jumped off the temple, he would send angels to miraculously pick him up. That was not a promise God made. But you can twist scripture and make it sound like that's what God said. And so this is why we need to understand the context of scripture in order to apply it. We can't just pluck out a verse and make it mean whatever we want, because that's very easy to do. That's what the devil excels at. So whenever we do that with scripture, we're actually being more like the devil than we are being like Christ. Context is key. Thirdly, don't test God. This was the second temptation. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, we see that Moses warns Israel that if they want to live in the land, they mustn't test God as they did in the desert. They must trust God and obey his commandments if they want to receive the inheritance that God has promised them. That's exactly what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 4. Unlike Israel, who arrived in the desert and asked, is Yahweh among us or not, and demanded water as proof of his presence, Jesus didn't need to test God to know his promises were true. He chose to trust God rather than test him. Jesus, moments before, had received the affirmation that God was with him whenever the Spirit descended upon him at his baptism. He didn't need more proof that God was with him. The people of Israel had literally just seen ten plagues fall upon Egypt. They had literally just parted, they had just walked through parted waters. They didn't need more evidence God was with them. At that point, God had revealed himself enough where they should have just trusted him, but they didn't. And so Jesus 
chose to trust God rather than to test him. That's the governing principle. And then lastly, the third temptation, the fourth quotation that we have here, Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses warns that God, who has given them everything and more, is a jealous God. If they worship any other God as they did in the desert, then they will have to pay for their actions, right? God has given them everything, right? And so he is the one who deserves their devotion. And if they give devotion to anybody else, he has every right to be jealous because he is the one who has purchased them. He is the one who has earned their affections. He is the one who created them and deserves all things, deserves all glory, honor, praise. To give that glory to anybody else is a grievous and horrible sin. And Jesus gets that. Matthew chapter 4. Unlike Israel, who arrived in the desert and turned to idolatry with the golden calf, Jesus refused to worship anyone but God, knowing him to be the giver of all good things in their appropriate time. So the devil might have something to offer Jesus, but he says, what you have to offer me is nothing in comparison to what my father has to offer me. And so he stood on a mountain and the devil offered him kingdoms. And he says, no, I worship God. And this foreshadows the end of the gospel of Matthew, where Jesus will stand on another mountain and he will say that God has given me all the authority over the heavens and the earth, right? So he is going to be patient and he is going to endure temptation and he's going to wait until the proper timing wherein God gives him the true gift and the true provision, whereas the devil could only give him a cheap copy, right? And so Jesus understands this perfectly. And this is exactly what Matthew's whole point is in this entire gospel, right? Because he has been laying the groundwork for Jesus being equipped to be the Messiah. And right here, we get to see that not only does Jesus know the scriptures, but he knows how to apply them to perfection. And he is succeeding where everybody else failed. He hungered to satisfy God more than his own flesh. He chose to trust God rather than to test him. And he worshiped God and served him only. And so that is the role of this whole story in the gospel of Matthew. But before we finish up, what I want to do is I want to actually find some practical life principles that we can take away from this story, because that's the really cool thing about this. We actually get to see how Jesus, the son of God, the perfect one handled temptation. And as imperfect people who sin all the time and who are constantly faced with temptation, I think we can learn a lot about this. And one really cool thing that we see about these three temptations is that they kind of tackle the three different categories of sin that the Bible is constantly presenting us with. If you go to 1 John chapter 2, John basically frames sin as taking three different forms. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And if you look at these three different uh, temptations that Jesus faces here, he actually faces one of each of those. And so you actually have lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. If you go look in the gospel of Luke, he actually flip-flops the order of the second and third temptations. So it actually follows the order that first John has them. And it actually follows the order that you find it in other examples in scripture that I'm about to mention. But right here, uh, we've got the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and the lust of the eyes. And I just want to break down each of those three categories and talk about how we see it in Jesus's example, and then also other places we see it in scripture, what that temptation really is, what the root of that temptation is, and how we can ultimately overcome it by following in Jesus's footsteps. So that's what I'm going to cover real quick. First off, we have the lust of the flesh. And in order to understand this one, uh, maybe we can go down to where you're looking at this table. You see what this temptation really is, right? This is the appetite of the body. These are the things that we crave. In Jesus's story, it has to do with physical hunger. And really in all three of these examples I'm going to list, it has to deal with physical hunger. But I don't think it's limited to just that. I think that this is also the um, 
appetites of the flesh we have for sex and for different entertainment and stuff like that. Like there's all different forms that this can take, but it's the internal cravings of the body that we have that desire to be fulfilled. And so the way that I describe this uh, just in this table right here is that really this is hedonism, right? Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure above all else. And that's really what the root of this temptation is. It is where the devil swoops in and he asks us to pursue something to please ourselves, right? And ultimately what that is, it's a perversion of goodness, right? Because a lot of the things that he will try to get us to pursue are not inherently evil things, they're just things that need to be embraced at their appropriate time, right? Food itself is not sinful unless you are currently choosing to fast and you are in this midst of the spiritual discipline where you are choosing to fast, in which case, well, you know what? Eating food at that point, that'd be sinful, right? Or if you are being gluttonous at that point, food could be sinful. Sex is not inherently sinful. Sex should be a good and beautiful thing, but outside of its appropriate context, it is sinful, Right. And so these things aren't inherently bad, but whenever you pursue them for the sake of pursuing them, and when you pursue them for the sake of pleasing yourself, you're perverting a good thing and you're perverting a beautiful thing. And as a result, you're falling into sin. And that's exactly what the lust of the flesh is. And you see this whenever the devil shows up to Jesus and says, turn this stone into bread. Right. Jesus had the ability to do that. And you know what? There doesn't seem to be anything inherently sinful about doing that. But Jesus realized that he would be employing his power for the singular purpose of pleasing his own fleshly appetites. And he realizes that that would be inherently sinful, right? He'd be, perverted, be, he'd be perverting something good, right? He has this miraculous ability that he uses to serve others. And he sees this like thing that is a stone, which is a good thing, and bread is a good thing, but whenever you take these three things and combine them together where he is miraculously turning a stone into bread, well, all those different things are only being used to serve his own fleshly appetite, and so he turns that down, right? And the reason why he did this is because he hungered for God's word more than he hungered for bread, and he said, yes, I do have an appetite that craves to eat food right now, but more than that, I have an appetite that craves to live off the word of God. And because God has commanded me to do this and to fulfill all righteousness, I must deny myself and choose to, issue, to exercise self-control and live for him, right? And so this is a place where we could easily, we could apply this in our own lives, right? We have all these fleshly desires, right? Sometimes I just want to keep on eating and I need to realize, you know what? If I kept on eating right now, I would just be indulging in excess and hedonism and just abusing a good thing God's given me. Maybe I need to stop eating here, right? Uh, to, to indulge in sex, right? If you are not a married individual and you are having sex, you are taking a good thing and you are desiring that thing so much that you abandon God's word in order to indulge that, which shows that you hungered for sex more than you hungered to please God. And so you can see how the way that Jesus handles this is beautiful right? Because he hungered to please God more than he hungered to please his own body. And so that's really cool. And you see how other people have failed, right? If you go to the fall of man in Genesis chapter three, this is the first thing that Eve notices about the fruit hanging from the tree. She saw that it was good for food. She saw the fruit and she said, mm, that looks good to me, even though God had said she should not eat it, right? So God had said that is bad for food. She said, I'm going to say it's good. 
because to her, it was a lust of the flesh. It would satisfy her hunger. Same thing with the people during the Exodus, right? They got to the desert and they were hungry. And you know what? It's good that they were hungry. God gave them that hunger, but he gave them that hunger in order to test them to see how they would respond. And they decided to grumble against Moses and grumble against God. And even whenever God provided bread, they overindulged in it and they disobeyed his commands in order to pursue bread. And so we see how during the fall and during the Exodus, these people failed and they actually overindulged and they hedonistically pursued the appetites of their body. They perverted something good in order to satisfy their own flesh. Jesus, however, denied himself and he chose to exercise self-control in order to hunger for God's word over hunger for his flesh. You see the same thing in the second temptation, right? This is the pride of life. And the way that I've described this is this is the appetite of the self, right? This is just the pride that we feel in wanting to be something important, right? This is another place where the devil will get us all the times. This is something probably I struggle with more than the other two, right? Because you just have this natural craving to be something important and to prove that you are something and you naturally, like we're, we're not humble people, right? All sin, I'm convinced, is rooted in pride because we think that for some reason we have the, like, well, for some reason we have the audacity to overwrite the commandments of God. And that is the most arrogant thing we can do. So all sin is rooted in pride. And the devil knows this. And he quotes scripture to try to encourage Jesus to pride. I see a lot of people nowadays who quote scripture in order to almost encourage pride. And that's really discouraging to me. But what this ultimately does is it encourages narcissism, right? And this is a perversion of truth. How can I say that narcissism is a perversion of truth? Because ultimately pride is an incorrect view of God in relationship to self. That's actually my personal definition of pride. It's an inappropriate view or how do I define it? It's, um, I forgot my own personal definition. Well, incorrect. That, that'll work for now. An incorrect view of God in relationship to self. That is what pride is. Whereas humility is a, oh, proper. That's what it was. Uh, an improper view of God in relationship to self. That is pride. Humility is a proper view of God in relationship to self, right? So here's who God is. Here's who we are. If you understand both of those correctly, that is what genuine humility is. Whereas pride comes whenever we pervert one of those. Either we make God lesser than who he is, or we make ourselves greater than who we are. That's where pride seeps in, and that's where we become narcissistic. And this is what we see the devil tempting Jesus to do whenever he says, hey, if you're truly the son of God, why don't you cast yourself off the temple, right? If you really are such an important person, then doesn't God owe it to you to come and defend you? right? That's exactly what he's tempting Jesus to do right here. He's like, hey, let's make a bigger view of you and let's make a lesser view of God to where you're a really big deal and God owes it to you to come defend you, right? It's about pride, right? If you really are as important to God and if he really loves you, shouldn't he prove that to you? And that's exactly what we see the people of Israel failing uh, and Adam and Eve failing in the garden, right? Whenever Eve is looking at this fruit, she says that this, well, it says that when she looked at it, she saw that it was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes and it was desirable to make one wise. The last thing there is that she looked at the fruit and she thought that it had something to give her. God had told her to stay away from the fruit because it will bring death. But she looked at it and said, mm, something about this fruit seems like it will give me something. And she thought she had something to benefit from it because what did the devil tell her? If you eat this, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And technically, what he did, said was not incorrect. Kind of like in the passage with Jesus right here, he quotes God, 
but he twists the application of it, right? Because technically Adam and Eve were already like God. They'd been made in his image. And he framed it like being like God and knowing good and evil was a good thing, whereas ultimately that was not a good thing, right? Because God alone has the right to decide what is good and evil, but Eve looks at the fruit and says, that looks good to me. I think I have something to gain from this as if God had not given her enough already. And so this was fueling her pride. She said, I want something for me, 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 me. Same thing with the people of the Exodus, right? They get to Massa, right? And they start complaining about the water. And they're saying, is God really with us? If God really loves us, then he should take care of us and he should provide for us. And he should do something miraculous to give us water. And ultimately God did that because he is gracious and he is loving. And you know what? He didn't immediately destroy Adam and Eve either because he's gracious and loving. But ultimately, these things are acts of pride. And Jesus did not tolerate it. Instead, Jesus said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Rather than even engaging and flirting with pride, he denied himself and said, you know what? God doesn't owe me anything, right? And keep in mind, Jesus is literally the son of God in a greater way than Matthew's original audience would have even understood at that time, right? Jesus is truly God, truly man. But even he, in this humble state, says, God doesn't owe me anything. I don't need to test God. I trust that he is who he claims to be, and that's enough for me, right? This is how the humble person should respond in all situations. God doesn't owe us anything. We don't need to test him. If he has promised it, we trust that it's true, and we move on. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow. You'll notice that all of these have to go with denying yourself. Then we get to the third one, the lust of the eyes. Uh, this, these are the things that appeal to the appetites of your eye, right? These are things like just beauty in general, right? Um, probably pornography would fall into this category, but not just pornography, anything that you covet, right? Anything that you find covetous, this falls into the category of the lust of the eyes. And these are very, very difficult to perceive. I would, I would actually argue that whenever John lists them in first John, he's dealing with a progression, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. In that order, they become more and more difficult to perceive. And really they're all, they all like really almost every single sin encapsulates all of these, right? Lust of the flesh is the base desire. Uh, lust of the eyes is a little bit deeper. And then pride of life is the really core issue. But lust of the eyes, uh, it's the appetites of the eye. It's the things that you see and therefore desire and are encouraged to pursue, right? This is what I would say is just materialism. It is a perversion of beauty. You see something that is beautiful and you want to make it yours, even if God has asked you not to do that, right? This is what... Um, this is what Jesus is being asked to do whenever he looks at the kingdoms, right? The devil takes him up to the top of the mountain and says, look at all these kingdoms. These could be yours if you just bow and worship me. And Jesus sees it and he is being encouraged to think in a materialistic manner, right? Look at what you see with your eyes. This can be yours. Do you want it? This is what we do in pretty much all like all advertisements and commercials nowadays. It's lust of the eyes, right? Don't you want this amazing vacation? Don't you want this amazing home? Don't you want this fancy car? Lust of the eyes. It could be yours. Think in terms of materialism, right? The devil says, this can be yours right now. But instead, Jesus said, no. What I would have to sacrifice in order to make this mine now is not worth it because I worship God alone. And so he didn't live for what was before his eyes. He lived by the truth that he had heard in God's word. Unlike Adam and Eve. When, Adam, when Eve looked at the fruit, she saw that it was good for food and it was desirable to make one wise, but she also saw that it was a delight to the eyes. The fruit was not an ugly fruit. It looked delicious. It made her mouth water. She wanted that fruit in her mouth and therefore she ate it, right? And so 
she was drawn in by beauty and she perverted it, right? Because beauty, once again, not a bad thing. But when it's perverted, it becomes a horrible thing, right? Pornography, what is that? It's a perversion of beauty, right? God designed the human body and it, he designed it for it to be enjoyed by a husband and a wife admiring one another and enjoying one another. But whenever people approach that from a premature and inappropriate stance, it becomes a perversion of beauty and it becomes materialism. And we reduce these people made in the image of God to mere objects to be pursued and appreciated for our own materialistic indulgences. And that's really problematic. And that's what the people of Israel did during the Exodus account as well, right? There was a God who they could not see, who was not giving them the land very quickly, but they wanted the physical land so much that they made a physical God who they could see in order to deliver them into the land. They made a golden calf, right? The lust of the eyes. They wanted a God they could see so he could take them to the land that they could see. Instead, God was calling them to live by faith. He was saying, I know you can't see me, even though technically they could see God more than we could see him right now because he was literally camped on Mount Sinai in a thick cloud of smoke. But the people of Israel wanted more, right? The lust of the eyes. They wanted something they could see and therefore they pursued it. Appetites of the eye. The solution to this is to worship God and serve him alone. Because every time you pursue the lust of the eyes, what you're doing is you are having to choose to sacrifice worship for God in order to pursue something else, right? Whenever, if somebody chooses to go look at pornography, they are saying, I worship the idea of sex and I worship the idea of materialism and I worship the idea of satisfying my own desires and satisfying the lust of my eyes. I worship that more than I worship God. Whenever somebody decides to go sell everything and just go, I don't know, pursue this dream vacation or something like that. Whenever people make these choices, there's always sacrifices that come with them, right? Whenever you live by your own covetousness and you live by the lust of your eyes, there's always a sacrifice. And usually the first thing to go is your devotion to God. And so what we need to do with all this, just to rein this all in, because the video was a lot longer than I anticipated it being. I'm really sorry for that. What we need to do in regards to all of this is we need to learn how to respond as Jesus respond. It isn't enough to just know scripture and it isn't enough to just know scripture in context because all because you know it in here means nothing. What you need to do is apply it. And just like Jesus hungered for God's word more than he hungered for bread, we need to learn to hunger for God's word more than we hunger for bread. We need to learn to hunger to satisfy God and to obey his commands more then we hunger to satisfy the desires and the hungers and the cravings that we feel in our fleshly bodies. Because guess what? These are corrupted and fleshly bodies that are prone to wander and they love to sin. So we need to reject that. Just as Jesus trusted God instead of testing him, we need to learn to do the same thing. God doesn't owe us anything. We owe him everything. If he has said it in its word, we need to take it as truth and we don't need to ask him for proof. We simply need to say, Lord Jesus God, you're amazing. Thank you so much for revealing yourself to me. Now help me learn to trust you more, even in my doubt, right? Lord, I believe, help me with my unbelief, right? Rather than testing him, we trust him. And just like Jesus worshiped God and served him alone, we need to do the same thing. There's going to be all these things that try to distract us. There's going to be things to our left and to our right that are trying to draw us away from devoting ourselves to God. But I pray that we will be like Jesus and that we will be like King David, who never looked left or right, but who decided to worship Yahweh and serve him alone.
That being said, that's all I've got for y'all today. Once again, thank y'all so much for listening in, and I just want to remind you that if you want more biblical content like this, I have plenty more on the Now Let's Be Honest YouTube channel. Also, if you don't mind, leaving an honest rating and review for this podcast would be a super huge help for helping spread the word. Until next time, I've been David Tate, this has been Now Let's Be Honest, and I look forward to moving further along in our study next week. Be sure to keep a smile on your face and don't let anybody steal your joy. Maranatha.